Cool. Awesome, man. It's, uh, it's really good to be here. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for, this is wonderful. <laughs> this is so amazing. And dude, like, man, this is just a wonderful, wonderful place to be right now. And uh, thank you guys for being here. Thank you guys for having this and hosting this, Daniel. This is a lot of work, guys. In case you don't know, if you've never hosted a conference on any level, this is a lot of planning. This is a lot of man hours. This is a lot of moving parts, going through COVID and all that stuff. You know what I mean? So, Daniel, you guys, you guys killed it. Y'all did a great job. This is phenomenal. Give you guys a hand. Daniel has not told me this. I know he lost sleep over this. <laughs> There's no way he had to have lost sleep over all the planning of this. So it's wonderful. I uh, am uh, like, uh, like uh, Lena and Casey said, my name is Jason Goldsberry. In case you guys are not familiar with me, uh, my wife and I, they're on the, uh, on the screen. Uh, we are uh, career missionaries to the Republic of Chile, which is the long, skinny country in South America. And uh, we just transitioned. We were, uh, we were on staff at Sam Houston State, Chi Alpha, for 10 years. And so we know and love Chi Alpha. We have just eat, slept, and breathed Chi Alpha for a long time. That's what we're going to Latin America to do is we, want to, we believe every student, every one of 75 million university students in Latin America, meaning from the way that they define it from the Rio Grande River down, have then they deserve a chance to know Jesus and to have the same opportunity that you've had this weekend. We want to see every student, 75 million across 40 countries in Latin America, Caribbean, have an opportunity to know Jesus. And we want to see, not, we don't want to do this alone. We want you guys to have a part in this, whether it's praying, whether it's going after you graduate, whether it's there, whether it's with Ted to North Africa. We want you guys to have a hand in the mission of God across the world. So uh, we're, we're just really amped. Um, if you want to follow us on Facebook, we've got a group going with the Goldsberries to Chile. You'll have to ask to join it. It's not an open group, but if you, got, yeah, I still use Facebook. I'm not old, guys. I, uh, if you uh, go and request, uh, request the thing, we'll, we'll, we'll let you in. Sometimes you get weird people that want, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know these people, so... Maybe that's just me. Okay. But uh, let me check my time here. I don't want to go crazy long. Okay. We good. But uh, dude really is. I'm just uh, just super amped about being here. Any of you guys, I'm curious, go, anybody go to Kiki's? Anybody hit some taco stands? Okay. Y'all left me. <laughs> Any disc golf? I heard there was disc golf going on. I'm mad. I left my disc at home. I'm, now I'm, I'm hurt. <laughs> hey, next time, right? We, uh, we play a lot of disc golf up where we are. So, um, yeah, you guys played without me. What, what a shame. I went home. I thought I was going to take a nap, but I was too excited about tonight. So um, we're going to jump right into uh, the scripture here. I assume that you guys came to hear the word of God because that's what's going to be happening. And uh, we're going to pick up in some familiar territory by now. Um, some, of the, some of the scripture has already been kind of reviewed. We're going to look at it a little bit more and, and attack it from a little bit different angle. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me or you can look up to the slide. I always like uh, having my Bible with me. At Luke 9.57, 
we're going to start at 9.57, and we're going to go down to the end of Luke chapter 9, which is verse 62. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we just pray before we get started here with the meat of this. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and Jesus, we thank you for the power that is in your word, Jesus. We thank you that, the, that you are with us tonight, Lord, and we ask that you would speak to us. Would you open our hearts Lord, would you open our spirits, open our minds, Jesus, open our ears to hear what the Spirit of God would say to us this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll read this together. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. We've heard some of this before, right? Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We're going to, uh, if you want to go into the next slide, what we're going to do, I kind of want us to kind of participate in this together, if you will. I don't want this to just be 30 minutes of me talking and you listening. We're going to look and consider kind of what, as we're looking through this, we want to look at three things in the scripture tonight. We want to look at the context of what's being said, meaning what was said before it and what is kind of coming after it. Why was this said and who was it said to? We want to look at the content, which we, that's just the matter of fact of what we just read. That's the content of it. And we believe that for every passage in the scripture, that there is a conviction that God is wanting to impart to us, that there should be an application, there should be a way that there should be some weight that the scripture has in the way that we live our life. Okay. We believe, I believe that, that this scripture possesses all three things. And so while you're, while we're, while we're kind of walking through this together, you can kind of process along with me. Okay, you guys with me? So what we're going to do is we're going to actually spend several minutes here talking about the context first. Because I think, it's, uh, I think context is always important. I think it's especially important in a, in a passage like this. Because these are some of the hardest words in the Bible, in my opinion. You have Jesus, who is like the Prince of Peace. He's the giver of everlasting hope. He says some very heartwarming and fuzzy and very nice things. We have uh, some signs, maybe in some of your, I've been in some of y'all's houses, some of your apartments, you got signs on the wall from Hobby Lobby that have scriptures on them. Uh, I've never seen that on any of you, any sign in Hobby Lobby. The put, no one puts their hand to a plow and looks back or let the bed, let the, let the dead bury their own dead. That's not going to sell very well in Hobby Lobby, right? They're going to be, they're going to be stuck with all those signs. What I want to do here is I want to continue reading on. We have the end of chapter 9, which is verse 62, and we're going to start in chapter 10. Okay, and we're going to just go a couple verses into it. The first verse of chapter 10 says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. 
I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. So after Jesus has said all these like very uh, difficult things, I like how the first verse number one says, it just says, after this, after Jesus has just said all these like things to, to his disciples, after he said all this, he appointed 72 and he sent them off into the harvest field. You may be familiar with uh, Luke uh, 10.2, and the reason why is that all around the world there are missionaries every morning at 10.02 that have alarms set on their watch. And when the alarm goes off at 10.02 in the morning, you guys could do this too. You guys could participate with us here. You can set an alarm at 10.02 in the morning, and when it goes off, you can pray. It's, you just pray Luke 10.2, okay? You're praying that, there would, that the workers would be sent, that there would be, uh, it says, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You guys, you guys, everyone, if you could set, it costs you zero dollars and zero cents, right? You could set an alarm and you could just say, Jesus, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Would you send workers to the field? Amen. Ten seconds, right? And I guarantee your heart will be changed. So Jesus is preparing. What's happening is that Jesus is, has been preparing these disciples to be sent out. It says that the 72 were sent out, and he is giving them sufficient warning and sufficient preparation for what is about to come. I believe that that context here is important. It's important in any situation, not just theologically speaking, uh, it's, this is a lot bigger than just say we need to have our right doctrine. Okay, That's, this is not what this is about. We want to see, make sure that Jesus is portrayed accurately. We want you and I want to have a clear picture of who Jesus actually is. I don't want to read this and think something about Jesus in a way, think about him in a way that he's just not like that. Okay. That's the purpose of context. We don't want him to see him some way that he's not. So that's why we're going to slow down. We're going to be very cautious when we read scripture, especially tough things. And we're going to be very careful to not just see what's being said, but also see why it's being said. Okay? This passage that we're talking about here that we just read was said to a group of disciples who just a few verses back... They were fighting to see who would be the greatest. These guys are the kind of punks, okay? Jesus is what's happening is laying out the cost of being a disciple. And in fact, I believe it, if Jesus had not said what he said to these disciples, it actually would have been unloving, okay? It would have been unloving of Jesus to not, it would have been negligent of him to not give some forewarning of the cost that the disciples were about to pay if they're going to remain true disciples of Jesus. Okay? Jesus was not negligent at all, was he? He was not unloving at all. He says this not as just a correction, but he says this in love so that the disciples would have a clear picture of what they were about to go, to, to, to go through being sent out two by two, as it says in, in chapter 10. You can't just like, let, like casually cruise through a passage of scripture like this, okay? You know what I mean? This passage happens at the end of chapter 9, but if you look at chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, there's been a lot that has happened. 
So I've got a slide here. This is just some of the things that have gone down. This is a long piece of scripture here. There's 62 verses in Luke 9. So go ahead and kind of, you can put that, you can put that slide up of some of the things that uh, have happened in Luke chapter 9. First of all, Jesus has asked Peter, uh, who do you say that I am? That happened. Uh, he predicts his death and resurrection. He's challenged the disciples to take up the cross and follow him. Then there was, uh, he transfigures, right? Moses and Elijah up here. Of course, Peter fell asleep, or Peter was asleep, it says, and he woke up bewildered. That's pretty amazing. Uh, then, you know, Jesus just, you know, rebukes an unclean spirit, and, uh, and a boy is healed, probably of epilepsy. Uh, there's a dispute that arises about who's going to be the greatest disciple. Uh, and then John goes off and forbids some people casting out demons, but then Jesus corrects him. And then James, James and John, they want to rain down fire on the Samaritans. These guys are, um, they're like a little dense. You know what I mean? Just truthfully saying, these, they're, they're not stupid. They're just like unaware, okay? They're, uh, they're like obtuse, maybe might be a, a good descriptor, right? I, uh, I grew up, I told you guys a little bit of my story. I grew up in Douglas, Texas, which is outside of Nacogdoches. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, uh, Douglas is not exactly the cultural capital of Texas. In fact, it's not even like the cultural capital of Nacogdoches County, right? Um, I grew up like a little bit um, like unrefined. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't even have cable TV, guys. We had the big, giant satellite dish in the back. Like, we didn't, we got like six channels growing up, and it's just whatever the satellite dish would turn to. And that was like nothing local, right? Our family was like a little bit, like I said, they're just like, maybe the word's redneck, okay? We were a little like rough around the edges. We were not like refined. My wife, who is from Westheimer and Gessner in Houston, is very, a very refined, cultured lady, right? I'm from Douglas. Okay, we came home to our neighbor's pigs on the front porch. You guys getting the picture here? I'm going to share a story with you guys about uh, my, uh, actually about my dad here. I was uh, not sure if I was going to tell the story or not, but I think I will. Um, my dad, who's, who's passed away now, uh, grew up, he was in, uh, he was in school uh, he tells a story about when he was in algebra class. This is about like 1955 or 1956. So this probably would not happen today. Just, just mark that in your mind. Don't worry. I don't have to worry about this. Um, he was in algebra class, and his teacher had uh, a seating chart. And the way that the seating chart was made is that the teacher had a smart row. Like literally, what's what happened is that there was a row of students, and you got... If you did well on your last test, you got to sit on the smart row. Now, the smart row was next to the window. It was like having the window seat on the airplane. If you did well on your test, you could, like, look out the window during class. If you did not do well on the test, the other four rows were the not smart rows. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? My dad never sat on the smart row. And... He, and the reason why is he never paid attention. That's just reality. My dad was not dumb or by any stretch of the imagination. 
he was just simply not motivated to learn algebra. He was not engaged. You guys with me? And this goes on for months. This is, uh, you know, school starts back then. Back then it started, I think, like, like September, right? And this goes on September, October, November, into December, January, February. And about March rolls around. About this time of year, the teacher calls on him uh, to, do, uh, to answer a question or do a problem with the board. My dad doesn't have any, he has, doesn't have any clue about what's going on. And he says, Goldsberry, I, got a, I have a bird dog pup at home that knows more about what's going on right now than you do. And my dad, like I said, is not stupid. In fact, he ended up being a high school chemistry teacher. But he was unaware, and he was not taking the class seriously. And in fact, it motivated him. It made him mad. He's like, I couldn't even see straight. He had embarrassed me in front of all my friends that I had been in all, my, all these classes with. He had just called me out. He's like, I didn't know. He's like, I wanted to just drop out of school. But he's like, I knew I couldn't. He says, I'm going to show this guy a bird dog pup. And he went home, and he started studying. He started taking the class seriously. And what ended up happening is that the next exam rolled around, the next quiz or next test rolled around, and he finds himself sitting by the window. Okay, you guys, that's kind of cool, right? These guys, these disciples are in class with Jesus. They're not stupid, but they are not catching the full gravity of what's going on. You got, okay, you had the, the transfiguration and you slept through it. That's kind of, come on, guys. How do you sleep through that? They like hanging out with Jesus. Um, there's like some incredible things that are happening. It seems like everywhere they go, it's like every five verses, there's like some incredible thing that Jesus is doing. But the reality is that Jesus has a much bigger plan than what they picked up on. Jesus saw something, I believe, in them. He had a dream for their lives that was, a much, that was much bigger and much further beyond them just hanging out on the mountain together or them, him just doing a, a, a miracle or two here or there, right? There was something a lot larger, and he needed them to get it. So I would say this to us today. You may be here this evening, and you may be dense. You may be obtuse. You may not get it, but I believe that God has dreams for your life. He has dreams to make something of it. You can be from Douglas, Texas, and God can do something with you, and he can send you to, to, to speak and be his herald, to be his proclaimer in places you've never even heard of. God can do something with your life. You can, come, you can be nobody from nowhere and God can take something and make something out of you. Look at these disciples. The disciples, the story, we're talking in Luke 9. Jesus is talking, talking hard talk to them, right? You need to read the rest of the New Testament. They didn't stay there. So Jesus has said some really difficult things to them. He's uh, corrected them uh, as he's gone along in Luke chapter 9. He's corrected them over and over. They're not getting it. Finally, I believe when we look at, uh, if you want to go back to that, to that scripture of uh, starting in verse 57, I think it's the second slide, uh, he goes back, they're not getting it. I think what we're seeing here 
is that he just lays it out. This, is, this passage is just a summarization of all the things that he's already been saying to them. It's kind of like he said, in conclusion, you knuckleheads. This is, what's, this is what the deal is, is that nobody who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. He has been trying to say this delicately, and it's not happening. And sometimes you just got to talk. You just got to tell people what's going on. Y'all know what I mean? I uh, want to jump real quick here to another, to another verse here that's, that I believe is, is, is equally challenging and relevant. I remember when I was a new Christian, I, uh, I came to know the Lord. I, was six, I can't remember if, if I was either 16 or 17, but I was, it was right before I went into college. I met Jesus. And I remember reading this verse in, uh, in Luke 14. It was Luke 14, 26, if you have your Bibles. I remember reading this verse for the first time and, and when I was a new Christian. If anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And I remember thinking, uh, I don't, that's not too bad. I already hate my dad, so. Like, it's not, okay. Like, my wife and children, I don't, I'm not married. I don't have any kids. I think I'm good. Check. <laughs> right? What Jesus is saying here is that the, in, in this context, their identity, the people who he was speaking to, the disciples' identity of that time was tied to their family name. When you're talking about hating your family, it was your identity. It wasn't just your mom or dad, your, your, you know, I, I hate my brother anyway, so whatever, you know, it wasn't like that. Your name meant everything. That's why the scripture that says the Lord's name is a strong tower. Somebody read that for me. Anybody have Proverbs 18.10? I don't think we have the slide for it. Anybody want to read that real quick? Sorry, I just quizzed y'all. Like, read, that, read that scripture if you can get to it. Proverbs 18.10. Let you guys find it. Okay, read it. Yes. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it. Another version says, and they are saved or they are protected. That's why that verse means so much, is that the name was the identity. If you run to the Lord's identity, those who run to it, will be protected. They will be saved. In our culture uh, right now, currently, our identity has uh, actually has a lot to do with our resume or what we're going to college to do or your major. When you meet people, we tend to ask, we don't ask them like, okay, what is your family name? That's kind of, are you stalking me? You know what I mean? <laughs> what do you need to know that? I found... That, uh, you know, it's like, okay, what is your major? That's the way that people are identified. Like, what's your major? Sometimes it's where are you from. Honestly, it just helps me to remember people. Uh, you would never ask people about, like, their family, like, intimate details about their family, right? Sometimes it's, like, even kind of like, why do you want my cell phone number to text me? I mean, that's pretty impersonal. But it's like, I'm not going to give you my cell phone number. No, no way. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
your identity in our context has a lot to do with our resumes. What have you done? What is your major? What is your education? What is your experience? You know, every, every uh, entry-level job wants uh, 10 years of experience, right? Yeah, you get, yeah, you'll see. What have you been doing? In those days, the equivalent was who were your parents? What is your family name? What is your background? Your value was tied into your family. When Jesus is speaking, he's speaking metaphorically here. He's not saying to literally hate them. In fact, uh, Jesus says many times, you know, he says, yeah, we want you to, uh, you know, you should love everybody. You should pray for your enemies, etc." He's not telling you to literally hate your parents. He's saying that, that in many times he's using a metaphor to say something very literal or very serious. I sometimes think that you can say something serious, but if you like use a metaphor to say it, it's like even more serious. It's like, oh, okay, got it. Like, it's like, hey, don't do that. Hey, stop doing that. But if I say, dude, if you don't stop doing this, I'm gonna knock your lights out, dude. I'm not gonna literally knock the guy's lights out, right? But he's gonna get it. You guys see it? We live in a world today where one out of every six Gen Z students identify as LGBTQ or somewhere on the transgender scale. And Jesus is saying that everything must come to under, his, under the lordship of him. The reality is that you cannot help who your family is. When Jesus is telling people, to, uh, when he's telling them to hate their father and mother, they can't help who their family is. You cannot help whether your family is rich. You were just born into it. You can't help if your family doesn't have two dimes to rub together, if you're poor. I can't help if I'm from Douglas. I can't help that I'm white. There's, all, there's a number of things. So, there's a lot of social dynamics that I cannot, I was born into this. I did not get to choose before birth about if I was going to be American or whether I was going to live in South Africa. You guys with me? You just can't change your background. This is what you can do, however, is that you can submit all of it to Jesus. Every part of you. Even the parts you can't change, and even the parts that you are not even sure that it would be possible for you to change. All of it, every inch of your identity is to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. Everything we have, all of it has to come under his Lordship. Jesus will not, will, will not bow to your identity. He did not bow to their family name. He did not bow, he will not bow to any man or any woman. It says, in fact, in the scripture, the opposite. It says to him, to Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is commanding disciples here to give their entire identity to him. I'll share a story for you guys from elementary school. I've been telling school stories today. I guess there's a theme, right? I, uh, I, grew, I was in elementary school back in the 90s, which is now back in style. Yeah, I saw this stuff in the 90s. 
And we were just kind of, the thought, the idea was just kind of getting introduced. Uh, you guys have heard, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. That was like kind of getting pushed on us in elementary school. Like, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be, right? And so we actually, when I was in the third grade, we had to write a paper. What we did is that every, we, we had a, a hat with every name of every other student in the class. It's not a very big, maybe like 20 other students. And we all had to pick a name out of um, the, the hat and, uh, and write a paper about them, about what we thought they might be when they, when, uh, they grew up. Okay, and so I, I pick a name out of the hat, I pull it out, it's my friend Kevin. And uh, Kevin was uh, also rough around the edges, if you guys get it. He was also a little dense. I'm just going to let you guys kind of read between the lines here. He was also from Douglas. And so I wrote a paper about what I thought Kevin might do when he grew up. And I said, I think Kevin would be great working at U-Haul. And the reason why is that he was overweight and that he cussed a lot. <laughs> this is bad. And I remember I got, I, I got sent to lunch attention for it. And I was like, I'm like, what? It's true. <laughs> And I remember, like, people in the class were like, I'm going to be a doctor. And I'm like, you're go no, you're not. <laughs> like, there's no way, right? One thing I'll never do, I'll never play in the NBA. I'm five foot nine, okay? Like, like this, right? Anybody in here, I'm just curious, anybody, uh, uh, you guys play, high, anybody play high school sports? In, you know, in high school, of course. Okay, did anybody sit the bench? Like a lot. Okay. I did not sit the bench, and I'll tell you why. The reason I didn't sit the bench was my friend Ben was on the bench. There was somebody worse than me. I played one year of basketball in high school. And my friend Ben sat on the bench on the JV team. Okay, I went to a 1A school. There were 90 people in my high school. My friend Ben sat the bench the entire year on 1A JV. He played like 10 minutes the entire year. And five of that was like the last game. The, the coach was like, oh, right, we should probably play him, right? He like puts him in. We're getting blown out. And somehow he ends up with the ball. He, I think he re made a rebound from a, from a missed shot. And somebody fouled him. And he goes to the line to shoot a free throw. Dude, this is like Ben's moment. He's been waiting the entire year. Some knucklehead has fouled Ben. He's at the line. It was the only shot that he, he, he sets there. He's, you know, he's practiced. He's been to every practice. He uh, sits up there. You know, he may, actually, it was more of like this. It, was, it wasn't a very good shot, right? He, he makes it. And the places goes absolutely nuts, right? Dude, he made me look like LeBron James, all right? <laughs> he was one for one in his high school career shooting. He was 100%, right? <laughs> okay, I quit the next year. I, I played a little bit more, but it wasn't a lot more. You know what I mean? I was, we were doing other, other sports too. Me nor Ben ever had a dream of making the NBA. 
If you sit on the bench at 1A JV, you're not going to the NBA. Newsflash. Physically speaking, we know that some of this stuff of like, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. Okay, that's just a bunch of garbage. That's just not reality. My friend Ben proved that. I proved that, right? However, spiritually speaking, you can be as close to God as you want to be. If you want, conversely, to live a life that is far from him, if you want to live a life doing your own thing, he will let you. In verse 62, Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Here's a question for you. Was it cruel of him to say that? Was Jesus cruel saying that? That's not very encouraging, Jesus. Why didn't you say something else? Was it impossible? Did he set an impossible standard? Did he say something that was cruel or impossible? These things about let the dead bury their own dead. When, and nobody that puts a plow to and looks back as fit for service. Is this cruel? Is it impossible? Did he, did he say something or ask something that could not be done? Scripturally, this is where we've arrived. Is that... In the natural, it is, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, yes. Jesus himself is everlasting hope. He is the embodiment of hope. He is the power to be obedient. If we take up all he says that is possible for us in Scripture, then yes. In the natural, you cannot. However, there is something in the Scripture that supersedes the natural. It is called supernatural. We serve a supernatural God. We do not serve a strictly naturalistic God. We serve a God who is capable of signs and miracles and wonders and things that we cannot even articulate. We serve a God that is still doing those things today. He is not still on the cross. He is working and he is alive in our hearts if we will let him. Through the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible. The worship band, if you want to come back up, we're going to start landing the plane here. I'm having a great time with you guys. We're not quite done, but we're heading that way. I would also add this verse that says, no one who puts a, plow, a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus was the fulfillment of this. Jesus did not ask anything that he did not do or was not willing to do. Jesus put his hand to the plow and he never looked back. We are here as the result of people who have gone before us, who have put their hands to the plow and have not looked back. This Chi Alpha was started, the Chi Alpha in Kingsville, the Chi Alpha in Corpus. I know all of these guys very well. They could be in a secular job making real money somewhere. 
they've never looked back. This weekend, we've, uh, I believe we've been challenged. This is the summary. We've been challenged to put our hands to the plow. We've been challenged to, be, to bury our own dead. We've been challenged to put our hands to the plow and never look back. Why? Because it says in chapter 10, the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. Tonight, you may be in a place where you're being called. You may be in a place where you're being called to be sent out into the world that desperately needs Jesus. Maybe it's Mission, Texas. Maybe it's Monterrey, Mexico. Maybe it's Mauritania or Morocco. Maybe it's to reach the 75 million university students in Latin America. Maybe it's to reach the unreached and the unengaged in the Arab world where they will never open a Bible because there are none. We do not need natural power to fulfill this scripture. Tonight, you need supernatural power to say yes to Jesus. If you're going to take the plow and you're going to never look back, you cannot do this without him. You cannot do it. You need the power of God. Tonight, if that's you, we want to invite you to respond. If you want to come up, we'll pray with you. We'll lay hands on you if you want us to. If you don't want us to, God can touch you where you are. But the Spirit of God is here this evening to empower, to send, and to never look back. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the wonder-working power, Jesus, that we can be persuaded, Lord, that we are yours tonight, that there is assurance and that we can stand upon the word that these things and these promises are yes and amen. And Jesus, we just, we just wait for you just a moment. We ask that you would just speak and give us a clear direction this evening.